Welcome into the first ever Inside the Pylon podcast. Uh, I am Chuck Zada alongside Mark Schofield from Inside the Pylon and very happy to be bringing you our first podcast ever, really. And I uh, want to introduce now Mark Schofield, who many of you are probably familiar with. But Mark, busy, busy first weekend in the NFL here. Just a great first weekend of action. Some upsets, some performances from some rookies that we might not have been expecting to come out of the gates the way they did. A lot of good stuff to talk about. It's great to you know, get the first ITP podcast here uh, and rolling, so I'm excited about it. Always great to be with you and hear your voice, my friend. It always is, and we had some outstanding uh, intro music as well from our producer, Tucker, who is behind the scenes making us sound good. And uh, certainly uh, to any Armageddon fans out there, you will be... Uh, Welcome, I think, with with really pretty open arms. I think so. I mean, this is probably a podcast for you Armageddon fans to definitely, you know, bookmark it. You're going to want to keep coming back to this. It'll have great music, Harry Stamper quotes, just a lot of good Armageddon stuff as well as some great football talk. I now, think, so. you, you actually worked with Mr. Stamper at one point. Is that correct? I did. I did. It was just for a couple of months. It was a great experience. I learned a lot about, you know, making sure you hit 800 feet whenever you need to and making every depth that you need to, which, you know, it's great in drilling. It's great as a quarterback, too, when you're trying to make a five or a seven step drop. You've got to hit the right depth. <laughs> you definitely do. Now, let's take a quick look just in terms of we're going to go through a lot of this later on, but biggest stories from the weekend. What are some of your key takeaways, just top three things that you saw there? I mean, I think, you know, one, obviously the debuts of both Marcus Mariota and Javis Winston down in Tampa Bay, you know, it's the first time in NFL history you have, you know, the top two quarterbacks taking number one and two overall meeting in the regular season opener. There are some storylines from that game that we can get into the Indianapolis Buffalo game. Um, Indianapolis Colts coming into Buffalo made the AFC championship game last year. We know how that turned out, but then they got punched in the mouth a little bit by Rex Ryan and the Buffalo Bills. Uh, so that's another big story. And then I think what happened that we saw from Seattle, there were a lot of storylines with that team. They lost the Super Bowl in that goal line play. Cam Chancellor holding out. He's not there. Some shuffling in the offensive line. And some of those problems and question marks reared their head in their loss to the Rams. What did you see this weekend? Well, I, I think a lot of those things, you know, definitely in particular, I spent a lot of time watching the uh, the Indianapolis game, and in particular, stood out to me just how they continue to struggle with teams that have strong both offensive and defensive lines, just not able to really dominate at the point of attack or really get anything going there. And I think that's going to continue to be a major issue for them over the course of the year. And remember, this is a team that was, I think, by Vegas, picked third in terms of Super Bowl favorites and certainly came out of the gate uh, not looking that impressive when uh, when we look at their first impression here. Right. And I think the problem for Indianapolis, you know, it begins up front. I mean, obviously, Andrew Luck is an incredibly talented quarterback. They've got some weapons. They got him some more weapons in the offseason. They signed Frank Gore. They signed Andre Johnson. They drafted Philip Dorsett, the wide receiver out of the University of Miami. But when you can't protect the quarterback, he's not going to be able to get the ball out to those weapons. And Buffalo was able to get pressure on him. They could blitz at times. They could get pressure with just four or five guys rushing the passer. And when you can do that and drop five guys, six guys, seven guys into coverage, you're going to be able to contain those weapons on the outside. So going forward, Indy needs to figure out how they can keep a pocket clean for luck, how they can keep the franchise upright and let him make the plays and get the ball out to those weapons they added. 
Definitely, definitely. And fortunately, uh, we're going to switch gears now, and we're actually joined now by our first ever guest uh, on the ITP podcast. He is a former scout for both the Eagles and Giants, and we are pleased to welcome in now Dan Hatman from uh, the Scouting Academy. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you, guys. Glad to have you. Absolutely. So, Dan, let's talk first. Uh, obviously, you're in a little bit different role than you were uh, when you were working with the Eagles and the Giants. What exactly are you doing with the Scouting Academy now? So the goal is to get the men and women that are looking to translate into NFL or even college scouting jobs, tools they need long before they ever have to get their foot in the door. I just spoke with one of our alumni who's working for a team now yesterday, and he just said it was, you know, how uh, overwhelming it was to step in day one and try to execute at a high level. And, you know, he was really appreciative of all, all the things we did to get him ready for that step. And my history was just one where I was an entry-level uh, assistant with three different teams, and at each stop they just did not have the time or bandwidth to train their people effectively. And so you just had a lot of young people who were passionate but did not have the acumen or the tools uh, to do it well day one. And a lot of people bounced in and out of the league in one year. And I don't think that's fair to those who want to make a career in this. And I don't think it's fair to the teams who are looking at these young up-and-comers as their scouts of the future. And so we've stepped in to bring former general managers like Jerry Angelo and Charlie Army former head coaches like Mike Mars, Wade Phillips, and Chris Palmer, executive scouts, coaches. We've got 350 years of NFL experience here to help take this group, uh, like I said, of passionate men and women who want to build that football acumen and who want to get these traits down pat long before they have to step in the door and do them for real. So when you look at the curriculum that you've developed, what exactly are the major pieces that you're trying to provide these people with uh, as they come through your course? So we break the game down into eight position modules. So think about your quarterbacks, wideouts, DB, et cetera. And the focus is on what we call trait-based evaluation. There are 32 different ways of valuing players for schemes. We don't have the time to teach 32 different uh, ways of skinning that cat. So our standpoint is we're going to come in, we're going to teach the traits, the fundamental ones that every scheme is going to evaluate, every team is going to evaluate at each of these positions. And then we are going to uh, insist on each individual evaluator's ability to not just scout those traits, but then communicate them. And we're going to make sure that when they step in with an organization, let's take wide receiver, for example, they're going to be able to evaluate how they release off the line of scrimmage, their route stem, their mental processing of coverage, their separation quickness, their hands, their ability to translate yards after the catch, their blocking, what have you. And so that the evaluator can go to a team and say, here's a player. Here's the grades I have on all of that player's traits that he displayed on film. The team can then say, all right, these are the traits we really value. These ones we don't value as much. This player seems like a great fit. This player doesn't seem like a fit at all. But now the scout has all the ammunition needed to paint a great picture of the player, and the team has all the right information in order to assess whether that player is a fit. 
One of the things that stands out, at least when I first look at the information that you've presented here, is you also have, in terms of the coaching that is available, you're not just dealing with Joe Schmo off the street in terms of who's instructing these students. You have some pretty big names there as well. Yeah, and that's been the, the real blessing, is that we felt strongly that we wanted to get coaches involved. And because the vast majority of our students want to have an NFL future, we wanted to have NFL coaches involved. And so we just reached into our network and started pulling in the best minds that we could. And the great thing is is that so many of them are passionate about the concept, started bringing their friends into the fold. Uh, so we have a constant flux of coaches coming in. This year we lost three back to the NFL, uh, Wade Phillips, Mike Sullivan, Steve Loney. Um, but at the same time, you know, for us, I think that means that our instructors are relevant. They're current. They know what's going on in today's game. And, it's, again, they recruited their friends to help come fill those spots. So, you know, it's going to have a constant influx of instructors coming through to, you know, paint the best picture possible. Dan, when you look at the average person that is actually coming into your course, what are they typically coming in with in terms of knowledge? Really wide variety. Uh, we've got everything from the 17-year-old high school senior who knows he has, you know, four, five, six years to go before he's going to be a candidate but wants to start the process and make sure that by the time he graduates college, he's got all the tools in his belt, all the way up to the 62-year-old pediatric surgeon uh, who's taking the course because he wants to have fun evaluating players in retirement but no real career aspirations. Um, we've had 20-year high school coaches. We've had agents, writers, former NFL players, uh, player personnel directors from the college level. Really, there are a variety of different outcomes that we can help a student achieve based on you know what they're looking to do. So we, day one, ask them to provide us with where they want to take the course, and then we try to mold curriculum around that to help meet their ends. Dan, if someone is interested in getting involved in your curriculum and taking your course, how do they go about doing it? So the information and registrations are all on our website, which is scoutingacademy.com. Uh, highly recommend they check out our frequently asked questions section. Um, has probably 95% of all the pertinent questions information answered there. If someone has an additional question they can't seem to find an answer to on the website, I'm always available via email, and I'm at director at scoutingacademy.com, and they can shoot me an email, and we'll go from there. Very good. Well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on with us, and uh, I know you just had a new course uh, session starting up uh, yesterday, correct? We did. Our fall session started here uh, on Monday the 14th. We'll run for 16 weeks to the end of the NFL calendar, uh, and then we'll kick off our spring semester in the middle of January. Very good. Well, Dan, thanks again, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Dan Hatman there. And, and, Mark, you took Dan's course, actually. You went through the Scouting Academy course. What was your experience? I did. I took it this summer um, to kind of get a feel for what Dan and all the guys over there were putting together, and it's an incredibly intensive and well-designed program that, you know, you spend the first two weeks – kind of getting a feel for the core traits that Dan was talking about uh, for each position. I went through the quarterback module because that's kind of my, you know, self-proclaimed area of expertise. And they want you to start off with a position that you're familiar with. So you get a feel for what the traits these coaches and scouts look for 
in each position module. So for quarterbacks, it's arm strength, playmaking ability, decision-making. And through those first initial two weeks, you start to get a feel for how to identify those on film and how to put that into writing. One of the things that the Scouting Academy kind of focuses on in that next 14 weeks when you start writing evaluations is the writing aspect, translating what you see on film in terms of how a player performs and getting that down into a document that a decision maker can look at and work from. So when you watch a player, we watched five quarterbacks in their 2014 season. Um, We break down their film, put together an actual evaluation, get it to the instructors at the Scouting Academy, and you would get intensive, exhaustive feedback on that from Dan and the other guys over there. Yep. Yep. It's, so. a, it's a tremendous program. I would highly recommend it to anybody, even if you're just interested in, like Dan talked about, that pediatric uh, doctor who just wants to know more about football, or yep. definitely if you want to get into a coaching or scouting career. It's a great resource. So let's take that now and turn to, obviously, you were able to go through the course this summer. First week of the season, one of the biggest games that was uh, out there was that Buffalo Indie game that we briefly touched on at the Open. What did you see in that game that stood out to you on either side of the ball? One thing that stood out, and this is something I was excited to dig into a little bit on tape, was Tyrod Taylor. Uh, one of the big question marks this offseason was who was going to win that starting quarterback job on Buffalo. You had Matt Castle, E.J. Manuel, former first-round pick, and Tyrod Taylor, who backed up Joe Flacco for a number of years. And Taylor came out and emerged the starter, and I wanted to see how he performed in his first actual start. And from what I saw on film, he did a lot of really solid things. They did some things with him athletically, but they rolled him out of the pocket, let him run the ball a little bit. But what I liked was one play in particular. It was a third down throw in the second half. Indianapolis brought pressure. They brought a double uh, linebacker cross blitz in his face, and he hung in there waited for the play to develop on an out route to the outside and showed great poise and pocket presence. And that's something that you definitely like to see in a quarterback making his first career start. He looked like a veteran back there. He had the long touchdown throw to Percy Harvin, drove the ball vertically. He definitely has a solid arm, but it was that third down throw in the face of the blitz that I really liked. Now, Indy's defense has struggled a little bit over the last couple of years, in particular against the run. How do you expect Taylor to do, and obviously big matchup coming with an in-division game against New England this weekend, what, what do you expect to see from him? What would you like to see from him in that game to continue this trend? Well, I, I'd like to see, again, building off of what he did in week one, um, he's probably going to face some stuff from Bill Belichick, who always has a plan to attack an offense. He's probably going to see some stuff that he hasn't seen yet. So in terms of how Tyrod Taylor progresses as a quarterback. I'm curious to see if he can process the information in his head that he sees. If he sees different stunts, different blitzes, rolled coverages right at the snap. If he continue to like ingest that information, trust his eyes, trust his his homework, the film review that he's done, and continue to make plays. That's what I'll be looking for. How he handles the different looks that he's going to get this weekend. Absolutely. Now. Another game uh, that had a uh, significant following over the weekend was the Tennessee-Tampa Bay game. Not because these are two great teams by any means, but because they have two quarterbacks that everyone's really looking to see what they can do as rookies in Marcus Mariota and Jameis Winston. What did you see there? Well, I, I think we could start with Jameis Winston, and we can just kind of let Tampa Bay fans know it's going to be okay. He's going to learn from it will be he made okay. some mistakes. It's going to be okay. Um Winston, you know, he threw the two interceptions. The first one, it looked on film as if it was it was a third down and three play, and it looked as if he kind of predetermined, pre-snap, this is where he was going to go with the football. 
um, didn't kind of blink in front of the receiver, didn't see the sense of ball cut underneath that route, and it went for a pick six on his first NFL throw. He'll learn from that. The other interception was a slip screen. The right tackle put a cut block on the defensive end, got the defensive end to the turf. Winston tried to loft the pass over the defensive end's head, forgetting that this was a much athletic defensive end that he had seen in his collegiate career. The end gets himself up, picks off the pass. He'll learn from that. He made some good plays, threw the ball pretty well. Um, his touchdown pass to Austerian Safarian Jenkins um, was a nice example of him showing some poise in the pocket, um, trusting his eyes, keeping his eyes downfield when he needs to extend the play, and then having the vision to, to find ASJ for the touchdown. So he'll learn from this. I think he'll get better. Very good. Well, we're going to turn now to uh, look at last week's Steelers-Patriots game, the first game of the regular season. Uh, joined now by Dave Archibald from Inside the Pylon, who uh, put together an article on the four-tight-end look that New England employed on six different plays, actually. Uh, and Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Chuck, Mark. Uh, great to be on. Uh, glad to be part of the inaugural podcast. Absolutely, we're happy to have you here. We you, uh, you missed the Armageddon music, but we're still uh, still having a good time so far. Oh man, I, I guess I'll have to listen to that later. Yeah, you, we'll, we'll get you caught up. But let's talk a little bit about this four tight end look that uh, the Patriots employed during uh, that opening game on a couple different drives down by the red zone. What were the main things that stood out to you there? Well, to some extent, I mean, it's really just a variation on. A kind of a classic jumbo goal line look, which would be normally with two backs and uh, three tight ends. Um, James Devlin's injury, I think, kind of uh, flipped the script on that a little bit. So they're actually going with four tight ends in that jumbo package. Um, I think really it, it comes down to the, the specific personnel that they have with uh, Rob Gronkowski and Scott Chandler. Those are two big tight ends that are tough to cover in the red zone. And so when you look at some of the specific concepts that they used in order to get them open, uh, what types of routes, what types of route combinations were they running in order to uh, really make this work for them? Well, they, they did uh, three different things. Um, uh, and their, their second, third, and fourth touchdowns were all from this uh, personnel group. The, the first one, they, uh, they ran a play action pass from about the five yard line and uh, that kind of sucked in the, uh, the coverage players and opened things up for Gronk at the back of the end zone. Uh, the second time they lined up in a classic jumbo formation with Chandler as fullback and then split out uh, all the tight ends wide. And from there they ran a rub route with uh, Chandler getting open under Gronkowski's in cut. And then they kind of played off that for the for the last touchdown out of the look where Gronkowski faked in and then ran a uh, corner route and uh, was wide open on that. The linebacker was playing that. So kind of three different looks out of that set for the three touchdowns. Dave, how does a defense actually go about defending this? Can anyone? <laughs> well, that's, that's a good question. I think you've got to have linebackers that can cover – and there aren't too many linebackers who can cover a guy like Gronk. And then even if you have that, Chandler's kind of a handful in there too. So it's a, it's a difficult setup. I, I wonder if teams might try to uh, 
play the pass a little more um, from the kind of three uh, three wide look that they scored the last two touchdowns. Pittsburgh kept eight in the box. Um, Buffalo next week is a little more stacked defensive line, so they might try to get away a little lighter on the front and dare the Patriots to run the ball, which they really didn't do very effectively in the goal line, though LeGarrette Blount was out for the game. Question for you. Obviously, one of the major issues, I won't say major issues, but Rob Gronkowski has gotten through, I believe, one full season without any major injuries. Uh, When you look at the potential of this type of offense without him, but just because he may miss a game or two, do they still have the personnel to be able to execute this type of offense if he isn't in there? I mean, I think you'd see you'd see something different. Uh, maybe try to get one of the wide receivers involved. Uh, Chandler's, I mean, Scott Chandler's been in the league for several years. I think he's an okay tight end as a second option. He's he's great as a first option. He's just okay. And um, you know, we know Oo Manawanui and uh, Mike Williams aren't really. Uh, real great receiving options. So I think they'd probably try to get another receiver on, on the field and if Gronk misses the game. Absolutely. Well, Dave, again, uh, thanks for coming on. And, and I know that uh, your article is up on Inside the Pylon right now. So certainly if anyone wants to check it out, they can head over there. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be on. Uh, thanks, guys. All right, all right. That was Dave Archibald, and again, that article is up on our website on Inside the Pylon uh, under the under the New England Patriots section. There, uh, Mark, what what did you make of uh, the strategy to use that four tight end look? Was that anything that you were expecting? No, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. And in, in fact, you know, the the New England Patriots used that six plays on Thursday night, and all of the NFL. Uh, league-wide used a four tight end set six times in 2014 yep um so you know that's clearly not something that i was expecting i don't think anybody was really expecting it but you know i would highly recommend dave's article he does a great job breaking down um how the pats employed that and like he talked about the rub route and kind of that jumbo slot look they had with gronkowski and chandler on you know the outside of the formation it's it's going to be tough to defend and i'm curious i've always struggled trying to game plan what josh mcdaniels and Uh, Bill Belichick will come up with from week to week. But I'm curious if they do run that again, what Rex Ryan might have in store for that look. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Well, what I'm curious about is if you look at how the Bills played against uh, Indy last week, you know, obviously one of the strengths of the Bills is that front four. Really, their their whole front seven is strong, but that front four in particular. And so it does give you some opportunities against a young and inexperienced offensive line of the Patriots to potentially generate some pressure with that front four and drop more guys into coverage. So I would I would expect that you'd probably see something along those lines in this weekend's game, but uh, you know is that is that kind of what you're thinking as well? Yeah, and I think Dave kind of touched on that too. Um, try to get pressure, contain the run, get pressure on the pass, or trying to use just four or five, and then you can go, you know, maybe a little lighter. Um, in the secondary, have guys that might be able to cover Chandler and Gronkowski a little bit better than linebackers, maybe be bringing in a, an extra safety or two. Yeah, yeah. So it'll it definitely one of the more anticipated games this weekend. I think there's a lot of thought that uh, the Bills could be a threat to uh, the Patriots. And obviously, if, if the first week is any indication of what's coming, I think they're a team that probably could end up winning 10 to 11 games this year, but uh, it'll be a big test to see definitely. what happens 
this week. And now, turning to a couple other games, uh, Denver and Baltimore. What, what did you make of this? It seemed like a little bit of a mess on both sides. Neither team really wanting to come out ahead, uh, but obviously someone had to win. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that really stood out watching this game was just how effective each defense was at pressure in the passer. Um, both Baltimore and Denver, um, two more teams that look to have you know some talent up on the f- front of their defensive side of the football. Um, Flacco was hurried throughout the game, um, through a through a pick six where he's pressured. Um, he even got knocked down on a, a quick screen pass, which is something you don't see every day. And the same thing, you know, when the um, when Baltimore was able to get pressure on Peyton Manning, they were able to you know prevent him from stepping into a throw, uh, tries to make a throw to the, to the opposite sideline, the ball hands in the air for a bit, and goes the other way for a pick six. Um, so again, teams that can generate pressure seem to be able to establish some success here, in the, at least in the first week of the season. What did you make of Peyton Manning's arm strength? Obviously, in the second half of last year, well documented that pretty much Peyton couldn't throw more than about 25, 30 yards. What did you see in this game? Right, and that was one of the things I was curious to see because, you know, now you've got the Kubiak kind of offensive system coming into Denver, which I think fits well with what Peyton Manning can do right now in terms of his arm strength and how he can throw the football. You know, he's on the back nine of his career. He has the neck injury. There have been the reports about how he's got, you know, loss of feeling in his fingertips, which makes it harder to throw the ball. And I don't think it's controversial to say that he's lost some zip on the football. But what they do, what they did early was a lot of underneath routes, crossing routes, get tight ends. They got Owen Daniels involved early. So he looked good in that system, but you definitely did see a lack of zip. There was a throw that he made, a third down conversion late in the second quarter. The ball is on the right hash mark. He tries to throw an out route to the right sideline. So it's not a particularly long throw, but after he hits his drop, he really climbs the pocket, crow hops to really get a lot to drive that football in the window. Years ago, he would just be able to rely on pure arm strength, but that arm strength just isn't there right now. And that's going to be an issue going forward for this team, I think. Yeah, and and, and definitely, as you mentioned, that arm strength is not there uh, anymore. And do, do you anticipate that Kubiak is going to have to make adjustments to his offense? Has he already made adjustments to, to deal with that? I mean, I think they've made some inju- kind of adjustments where they incorporate a lot of shorter throws, a lot of underneath crossing routes, attacking linebackers and coverage with – you know, either tight ends, like I said, Owen Daniels, or even getting receivers flowing across the middle to give him some, you know, ways to attack a defense underneath. Um, I would be interested to see if they try to push the ball vertically this season or not. It didn't look like they did a lot um, against the Ravens. That's going to be, you know, if you, if all you can do is throw intermediate and short routes, teams are going to start to collapse Yep. On that zone, on that area of the field. You, you've seen it before when the Jets, when Rex Ryan was there, they would clog the middle of the field against the Patriots and force them to try to make plays vertically. If a defense forces you to make plays vertically, they're forcing you to make tougher throws. And if these question marks linger about Peyton Manning's arm, it's going to be an issue for Denver. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, definitely something to watch this year. But turning now to uh, another major game from this weekend, mostly because it was so surprising, uh, Seattle and St. Louis. And, look, I I love this game because there were two special team touchdowns. So this is my favorite weekend game. But when you look at what you saw elsewhere – not really that pretty for uh, a team that was in the Super Bowl the last two years. No, it wasn't. And going into this game, obviously there were two storylines for Seattle. One was, 
you know, Cam, Cam Chancellor, still a contract holdout, wasn't in the lineup, wasn't playing for Seattle. How would the defense kind of adjust to life without one of their premier defenders, one of the better strong safeties in the league? But another storyline, and, you know, Dan Hatman in one of the articles, the season preview articles he wrote for Inside the Pylon talked about this is that new kind of patchwork offensive line they have in Seattle. They get some new names up front and they're going up against a very talented defensive front, another talented defense in St. Louis. They've got some players on the edges, Robert Quinn and Chris Lawn and Aaron Donald who looks to be an impact player on the defensive interior. So those are two big storylines and both those angles kind of reared their heads in this game. St. Louis was able to get a lot of pressure on Russell Wilson. They sacked him four times, and they were able to generate a turnover as well. They brought a blitz off the edge in one play, forced him to make a throw off his back foot, and it went for an interception. What? And what was really interesting about that play that I liked, they dropped Aaron Donald, the defensive tackle, into man coverage on Jimmy Graham, and he stayed with him step for step. That is a really? very talented defensive player. Yeah, I don't even think I could stay step for step with Jimmy Graham I, at this no, point. No, not me either, man. And I used to be pretty quick, too, so it's uh, definitely saying something. What what do you look for over the next couple of weeks to see if the Rams are legit? Well, I mean, I, I think what you're looking for, their defense is all – I think it's going to be fine. I mean, I, I wouldn't have any worries yep. about them from a defensive standpoint. Their offense, it's, it's just a matter of Foles continuing to get into sync with his receivers and in this offense. I really like – there was a play in the, in the overtime, actually, where – Foles was able to find Bailey on a corner route out of the slot against Richard Sherman. Seattle doesn't do a lot with dropping Sherman into the slot, but they do it against the Rams. They did it last year when they moved Sherman inside to cover Tavon Austin. They did it on this play, but Foles was able to get on the same page on a quick corner route to get them into field goal range after. And this is something I want to ask you about. Yep. What happened with that kickoff in overtime? I couldn't tell. I So here's the thing. I know that uh, Pete Carroll came out and said it was the kicker's fault. I've seen, I saw once in uh, college, my, it was either my junior or senior year, uh, our kicker decided to do an onside kick by himself. It didn't work out well. He ended up getting a concussion. Um, oh. He ended up getting chewed out by the coaching staff beyond that. So, you know, I, I think kickers can do some weird stuff sometimes. I mean, they're, hey, not, said that, not, me. they're not the most normal people. Um, but I don't know. At the NFL level, usually that's coming from above, so... I, I don't love coaches throwing kickers under the bus in general, so uh, I tend to side with the specialist, but we'll see what comes out, if anything comes out, over the next week. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it just it just seemed like you wouldn't want to start overtime off with a surprise onside kick like that unless that's come down from on high. It is an odd choice. So, in any case... Uh, Mark, I do think we're just about out of time, and that means that the first ITP podcast is pretty much in the books now. Wow, podcast one in the books. I hope everybody enjoyed it, at least a little bit. Dan was a great guest. Everybody should check out scoutonacademy.com, learn about the program they're putting in over there, especially if you're interested in just learning more about football or getting into coaching or player evaluation. It's a great program. Definitely. And uh, Mark, we'll be back next week. But uh, to anyone listening, make sure you check out all of our articles on InsideThePylon.com. And we will be back next week. 